the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, your weekly view on the stories shaping shipping. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. We're supposed to be in the um, summer silly season right now, but you wouldn't know it on the Lloyd's List news desk. We're in uh, results season and we've seen some uh, mixed fortunes for listed companies coming through. Some interesting insights from uh, CEOs who are having to account for what's euphemistically being referred to as a challenging market. And of course, then we have the escalating trade war between the US and China, making daily headlines as LNG, LPG, coal and now refined products are getting pulled into the tariff tiffs. Although oddly not crude, uh, more to come on that one, we think. But um, for this week, we're taking a week off on the tariffs uh, for the podcast. Um, coming up, I'm going to be uh, talking to some top lawyers about the uh, risks posed to shipping from uh, the latest rounds of U.S. sanctions targeting Iran. But for now, I want to uh, turn to containers. Um, joining me this week to digest the uh, the busy week in the box sector, I have our containers editor, James Baker, with me here in London, and our China editor, Sitchin Chen, out in Hong Kong. Hello, gents. Good morning. Hello, Richard. Now, we started the week with uh, news that DP World was effectively moving into ship ownership with uh, the acquisition of Unifeeder. Um, then we had some uh, very enlightening strategic direction from OCL talking about their expansion plans out in Hong Kong. Um, and then, of course, MERS popped up with uh, their first profit warning in four years. I think each of those stories probably talked to some of the bigger trends that are, are shaping the container market. But let's start with the DP World um, strategy. James, you're pretty optimistic about this one and uh, you seem to think it makes sense. So talk us through what's been happening there. Well, for for a carrier like, oh, sorry, for, for a terminal operator like DP World, um, it seems to be a move into the the logistics space, uh, very similar in a way to what uh, Maersk has been doing with its efforts to try and get get across the whole supply chain, which we've talked about before. Um, it is a it's a first step for for DP World, which until now has just been a pure terminal operator. Um, the, the market is changing quite quite significantly um, with the consolidation that's going on. And while it's been common for for carriers, container carriers, to have their own terminals, which makes a lot of sense for them, mm. in, in the past, <clears throat> the pure play terminal operators obviously haven't had haven't had any shipping lines. Now, that's left them without sort of secured customers in a way, and with the the new alliances, the, the the mega ships coming through, more efficient networks. Um, we're seeing a sort of slight changes in trade patterns. We're seeing loops being reorganised and restructured. Now, somewhere along the line here, there is a risk to DP World that it's not going to get the same number of calls that it could have got in the past. One way to ensure it does remain popular with its shipping line customers is to make sure that it has can do the feedering services that can bring cargoes into hub ports and can can feed them out again. So, in a way, this makes a lot of sense for for DP World to to have a, its own sort of logistics branch that mm. it can uh, that it can rely on. Came with a pretty hefty price tag, uh, seven hundred sixty-five million dollars for the acquisition of a European short sea container operator. Exactly. A bit pricey. Bit pricey, uh, particularly given that uh, Unifeeder only turned a profit of 26 million um, last year on revenues of about 450 million. Um, yeah, expensive, but then again, GP World's got deep pockets. Um, Unifeeder was 
last bought about five years ago for we think around 650 million um and it has expanded since then uh, mm. it's taken over unimed uh, shooty a couple of other lines it's you know it, it's not pure play it's it, it's european focus but it's got a mediterranean focus and um while it is asset light um in that it charters in all of its vessels mostly on short-term charters um DP World is buying its network, its expertise, its its connections, mm. um, and this is a, a, something that it can then expand. And um, given the asset-like model that Unifeeder works on, it's very easy for DP World to either go out and charter more ships and open more routes, mm. or alternatively, and this is something I think is likely to be in the cards or um, something potentially to look forward to in the future, is that it could expand by looking at other regional operators, um, particularly in the Middle East and Asia, and turn this into quite a significant feeder short sea network mm. by well, acquiring some of the smaller players. That's the interesting thing, because I mean, we've been talking about this being a unique play, and I think it is in many respects. But of course, Sichen, many of the Chinese port operators, they already have uh, some level of feedership operations under their belt already, don't they? Uh, exactly. I mean, especially the large coastal ports in China, uh, most of them actually have their own shipping companies that runs a feeder ship services uh, or even their own fleet. For example, uh, the port of Shanghai, uh, they have a shipping companies that uh, run services to the short sea uh, networks to like Japan, for example, South Korea and Taiwan. Uh, although, I mean, in the DP world case, it, it is special in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, it is a globalized port operator, whereas like most of the Chinese uh, port operators only, uh, you know, reside in their own home port. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the DP world play is, is, is on a different level in many respects. And as James, you pointed out, it's probably not necessarily the purchase itself that's significant, more the strategic goals that this implies. I mean, this is a, this is a real shift. We've been focused very much on the the move up the value chain from players like Maersk and you know lots of uh, impressive talk of digitization and all that but this is a this is a solid investment in, from the port side in terms of taking the game the game you know directly on their terms and that is interesting yeah exactly I mean I think we'll see more and more of this this <clears throat> we've had sort of vertical integration but now I think we're starting to see this horizontal integration where you know you have a uh, and you know the Maersk model is to be this global logistics integrator and we've seen yeah, for example, CMA CGM buying a stake in um, CEVA. We've had them also buying sort of buying up short sea operators and, and feeder operators themselves. Um, and this move to get across the, the whole logistics supply chain um, rather than just be dependent on doing port to port for the carriers or being a terminal operator for the, for the terminals and themselves mm. okay let's let's move on slightly i mean we mentioned Maersk. i mean uh, first profit warning in four years uh, not entirely unexpected given the state of the market but um you know do you think this says something important about you know where we're going um it's uh, you know in some ways it, it was a lot less bad than it could have been um the price actually the share price actually went up as a result uh, of a negative it, yeah profit yeah warning. i mean it was i've got some figures here that that you know the Earnings were down 16%, but that was still 18% ahead of what the what the analysts were, were expecting. So, um, in a way, not as bad as it could be. All the carriers have been hit this year. There have been low 
freight rates in the first half of the year. Um, and yet the bunker price, Merck's average bunker price apparently had gone up by 28% um, in the yeah, second quarter. That's that's a big chunk of costs, yeah. exactly, which explains why their, their ocean division, which is effectively Merck's line, was, mm. was uh, revenues down by 20%. So um, it'd be it, interesting to see. So the results, the, the main results are out uh, Friday. Uh, Next Friday. Next Friday, and then we've got HAPAG results got, coming out as yeah. well. Of course, HAPAG Lloyd had its own profit warning a while back, uh, the beginning of the month. Exactly. Um, so this was yeah, not surprising that Maersk would do the same, which, um, that I, in a way, would expect expect other ones to come. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, things aren't great out there. We've still got the same issues. Admittedly, there's you know there's been a bit of a peak season boost. Um, rate rates have spiked up, but that's only going to last for another couple of months, mm. um, and then we're back down to Rates going down again in the in the uh, third and fourth quarter. We've got, um, and then we'll have a lot of capacity out there, which is something I think we'll move on to. But mm. capacity is a real issue at the moment. So, bearing in mind, you know, that context, Sitchin, I was really interested to hear some of the strategic talk coming out of Double um, OIL. Um, you know, when they were talking about their plans to expand the fleet. Talk us through the sort of the logic that's being um, displayed here from from OCL side? Well, according to the uh, new chief executive of OOIL, uh, Huang Xiaowen, who is also a vice president of the uh, China Coast Coast Shipping Group, uh, apparently OOIL is looking to buy more 20,000 TU ships as well as to expand its fleet capacity by more than 40% to 1 million TU. Um, the capacity currently uh, stands at around seven, uh, 700 to 1,000 TU. Um, so, well, I think it, it, it is a surprise, but uh, it's also kind of expected. I mean, 40% increase in fleet capacity is by any means an ambitious plan, uh, but it's now, I mean, IALOCL is now part of Costco, the state-owned giant who is known for its big ambition and deep pocket. So uh, it, it kind of reminds us of another middle-sized carrier, uh, HMM in South Korea, who has also uh, released the same 1 million TU fleet uh, expansion plan, although it's, it's a smaller than OOCL, but it's also government-owned. So mm. you're kind of seeing this kind of government ambition, expansion ambition, uh, you know, uh, going into the market nowadays. Mm. And what was, I mean, what was really interesting was this is the first time we've seen these statements come out in the context of the Costco ownership. And I guess, you know, there were probably concerns that you were going to get a slightly schizophrenic um you know strategy where you're going to internal competition effectively under the same state ownership but you know they seem to have allayed some of those fears uh, would you say yeah yeah definitely uh, I, th I think it makes sense i mean uh, when costco made its offer a year ago uh, to acquire oocl it said that it wants the Hong Kong company's good brand, quality service, advanced IT services, and internationalized management style. Uh, it makes sense for now uh, Costco to actually maximize those benefits by expanding the fleet to get more market share. Um, so we don't forget that uh, you know OCL is still a premium brand uh, compared to Costco's own brand. 
So they definitely want to actually maximize that benefits. Mm. And in terms of the, the, the bigger picture, I mean, there was always, uh, you know, a lot of interest in terms of what are co the combined forces of, you know, China Inc.'s, uh, you know, box strategy is going to look like. This really clarifies for us, I think, you know, the, the stated ambition. And it's it's pretty big, um, you know, a 40 percent increase in terms of TEU capacity against uh, a fairly long term backdrop of overcapacity within the market is, is going to be worrying for the likes of Maersk and CMA, CGM and, and MSC, I guess. And for the market itself in general, I mean, you know, everyone, a lot of analysts and commentators are looking at the at the market, at, at the order book, and it's at a very low level compared to where it was historically, We've, you know, it's 13 percent if you look at the, the entire order book. If you look at the order book for vessels over 11,000 TEU, and this is what we're looking at here, these big 20,000 TEU orders, mm. um, it's it's around 40% of the existing order book. Mm. So we've got a lot of tonnage coming in, and that you know the 20,000s obviously can only be used on Asia Europe. That's where Costco and Double O are going to be putting these things. That's where we're going to see a capacity crunch. And if we look at what's happened this year, the CTS figures, for example, have showed that. On Asia Europe, there's been a virtually flat growth in the first six months of this year. In fact, a decline <clears throat> in the second quarter. Um, the, there are real issues coming up here with these these ultra large ships coming in, and I, I think we're going to. There's a lot of positive talk about a rebalancing and an inflection point in the market where things where supply and demand are going to balance out again in the next few years, but. I'm not as optimistic as some people are, I think, and carriers do have this habit of continuing to buy large tonnage, and I think that we're still looking at issues further down the line. Fair enough. Well, that seems like a, a fairly good place to leave it. We'll come back to you both for, for more insight as we get more uh, on these stories, but uh, for now, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. New U.S. sanctions against Iran took effect on Tuesday, and President Donald Trump, who defied Washington's allies to impose them, pledged that companies doing business with Tehran would be barred from doing business with the United States. What does that mean for shipping companies? We're joined by Jeremy Robinson and Lindsay Keeble, partners at the law firm Watson, Farley & Williams, to discuss the risks that shipping needs to be aware of in light of the latest developments. Jeremy, could you uh, start us off by just briefly outlining what the key risks are here for shipping companies? Certainly. Well, the problem is quite simply this. If you're a shipping company, you have to ask yourself, how do you comply with two incompatible laws at the same time? And I think shipping companies will ultimately have to choose either comply with U.S. sanctions on Iran and infringe EU law or comply with EU law and infringe U.S. sanctions. So I think today's situation for shipping companies is unique and could be quite uncomfortable uh, for some. And what I'd like to do is trace a little bit of the history and the context so we can see how this problem arose. Then I think we can understand the, the risks that arise. Um, in your preamble, you said that new U.S. sanctions against Iran took effect. But in large part, they're not new. They're actually old U.S. sanctions being reimposed. So President Trump is returning the U.S. law to the situation before the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action came into force. But the difference is that the international context is now... Um, very much changed than, than before. Before the what's called the JCPOA process, there was a strong international community of interest, at least between the US and the EU, uh, on how to deal with Iran. And the US authorities enforced 
their sanctions laws very heavily, including against non-US banks, where they violated secondary uh, sanctions. And this provoked a very strong compliance drive um, in, uh, in banks outside the US. And this found its way in due course into shipping industry contracts. Now, the result of that was that non-US but international financial institutions were simply not prepared to take the risk of violating U.S. law, U.S. secondary sanctions, even if many of the underlying transactions would not have infringed the law. So then with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the international community of interest then extended to the lifting of sanctions. In the U.S., secondary sanctions were lifted. In the EU, most of the financial and trade sanctions. But the financial sector has not been willing to relax its guard on, on compliance. Uh, either its own compliance uh, status or, or that of the counterparties with which it, it deals. So you would think that because of that, by reimposing extraterritorial sanctions, nothing much changes. And uh, the reality is somewhat different. Practically, uh, for example, trading in, in Iranian oil, which has been allowed since sanctions were lifted, that's going to have to stop. But the real big game changer is the blocking statute. Um, so. What that is briefly is the U.S. has unilaterally withdrawn from the JCPOA process and at the same time the EU has reaffirmed its commitment to the Iran deal as long as Iran um, stays with its side of the bargain. And to support this, and this is very interesting, the EU has amended and dusted off its old blocking statute. It has updated it. It has brought in an implementing regulation which sets out how you can apply for an authorization to comply with U.S. law. It's brought, sent out a Q&A. It sent out a joint statement of regret. So what they're really saying to us is we are serious about blocking the effect of U.S. extraterritorial sanctions. And the U.S. at the same time is telling us it is serious about blocking non-U.S. companies from doing business with Iran. Um, and so the, the difficulty that we have now, and this is why we're in uncharted waters, is in the EU, many policymakers may not be entirely aware how far international shipping has gone in complying with US sanctions um, as a result of what I was saying earlier about the banks and the insurers and how hard it will be in practice to abide by the blocking statute. So essentially, you could say the US and especially the EU have privatized a public international dispute. Right, okay. So in terms of where that leaves shipping companies, I mean, that's a fairly confusing set of contradictory statements. I mean, the Iran blocking statute um, from the European side, I mean, read at a sort of surface level seems to suggest that they can do business. But I mean, effectively, what you're saying is, you know, there are contradictory messages here. Should it be the assumption for shipping that in the current uh, sort of status of confusion that it's, it, it, it is effectively rendered ineffective by Washington's insurance and dollar banking restrictions? Well, you're right. Shipping is, is largely a dollar-denominated business. Um, but as I said, look, the financial community has been very wary of, of lowering its guard on, on sanctions compliance and cautious about it. Um, and shipping companies' contracts have all got sanctions clauses requiring compliance. So, yes, on, on the one hand, uh, you may be right. But as I say, I think, the, I think the situation of the blocking statute does put businesses between a rock and a hard place. Um, on the one hand, you say, well, the financial community is not going to change its position because complying with U.S. law makes sense, and in fact, they should be even more vigilant. But at the other, on the other hand, the EU blocking statute is directly applicable across the EU, and it is intended 
to be enforced at the level of individual member states. And so in the UK, failure to abide by the blocking statute is a criminal offence, which on indictment could lead to an unlimited fine. So it's, it would be wrong to say that the industry can therefore just ignore the blocking statute. What I think needs to happen is they need to look on a case-by-case basis whether the blocking statute actually imposes a clear obligation. Because the way I read the blocking statute, its ambit is potentially very, very broad, but really not very precise. And so there could be times when it just isn't clear under EU law whether a shipping company is required not to comply with US sanctions. And so shipping companies on a cautionary basis may wish to use the implementing regulation to apply to the European Commission for authorization to comply with US law. But again, that's not going to be a complete answer because according to the law, authorization will be granted only where the applicant's protected interest will be seriously damaged. But imagine this, you can have a situation where the shipping company thinks it's going to be seriously damaged if it doesn't comply with US law and the Europe, it applies to the European Commission. The European Commission then disagrees, refuses authorization, and the shipping company is then between a rock and a hard place. So I don't believe shipping companies can simply ignore the blocking statute. I think they have to understand what it means in every particular case. I think, Jeremy, as well, something else we've talked about is for, for banks, and I think what we've seen is that banks are very strong on in requiring ship owners, as Jeremy said, to comply with the US laws on sanctions, whether or not those laws actually apply to the shipping company. So take, take for example, a, a UK-based shipping company. They may be financing their ships in US dollars, so therefore they agree to comply with US sanctions because that's what the banks require the, them to do. And I think financial institutions based in the EU are also going to have a very difficult learning process to go through and a difficult consideration as to what they want to put in their loan agreements going forward because if they're in insisting that they will comply with US sanctions and they are an EU bank, they equally face the same dilemma of being stuck between two contradictory laws. So in terms of the average shipping company that's looking at this, scratching its head and thinking, what do we do? We're effectively saying you know, shipping companies need to have uh, legal advice on speed dial right now if they're going anywhere near the Iranian situation. Uh, it's a very com complex um, area, and it's and even if they haven't been going near Iran or they've been considering Iran in the past, with withdrawing from business plans again could cause you an issue with the EU blocking statute. So it is it is a diff very difficult situation. And what we don't know is how seriously the EU member states will. Uh, take their obligations. I mean, they do have obligations to implement EU law and they have obligations to enforce the blocking statute. But whether you can say a particular situation will give rise to a clear enough case for enforcement, I think, is, is anybody's guess. I mean, one way of, of putting it is this. Um, US sanctions say you can't carry out a certain type of activity. And the EU blocking statute says it is illegal not to carry out a certain activity if to do so is because of, of US sanctions. So on the one hand, you have to say, well, how do you prove that negative? Uh, and on the other hand, how do you show that the reason someone decided not to do business with Iran um, was uh, purely because of, of US sanctions? So I think there are some real practical questions about um, not only the appetite of the authorities to enforce the blocking statute, but what kind of situation 
will they take on? And this is something that may that shipping companies may have to deal with either by applying for authorizations on a fail-safe basis just to see uh, to see what the authority's appetite is, um, and maybe even having to test the waters in, in court. Um, but I think at, at this stage, uh, the, the better advice is, is to try and understand whether or not the, the dilemma, the real conflict, actually arises. If it doesn't arise, um, and for some uh, shipping companies it won't arise because they haven't been traditionally exposed very much to Iranian business. But where that conflict does arise, then it makes sense to um, analyze how serious it is and, and to consider the options which may include applying for authorization. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure it's a topic we'll be revisiting on this podcast as uh, as we find more clarity and uh, hopefully see whether or not the authorities are, are going to uh, do as you suggest. But uh, for now, uh, Jeremy and Lindsay, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks.